Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. We're going deep. We're going deep on this one. I'm very excited. There are some physicians who are more near and dear to my heart than others. Physicians who also have a shared interest in history. That's my family. That's my DNA. This is going to be a lot of fun. Adam Rodman from Bedside Rounds is here, and we're going to we're going to get into the work that he's doing. Before we jump into this conversation, definitely come and check out the website, www.explorethespaceshow.com. The whole archive is there. It is packed full of conversations with people doing incredible stuff, people thinking in interesting ways, teaching in new ways. It's just, it's a wonderful archive. I'm incredibly proud of what's been happening there. You can find me on social media. I'm very active on Twitter, at ETS Show. I love to engage with my audience. I love to engage with people there, hear what you're enjoying, hear things we can do better as well. You can email me, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. We are available on all of your favorite podcast platforms, so definitely go to Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you like to listen. Definitely subscribe. We've got lots of content coming at you. Please leave us a rating and a review if you can. That is a really powerful driver of people being able to find the show. It's a great way to support the work that we're doing. Really appreciate everyone who takes the chance to leave a rating and a review. That's really, really helpful. So let's jump in. Adam Rodman is here. Adam does similar work as I do. He is a hospitalist. He is in Boston. This is one of those episodes, right? It's always nice to do it in person, but he and I were joking around just before we started. If he and I waited to do this one in person, we'd be midway through the year 2020. That's unacceptable. <laughs> We've got to go. Adam, welcome. Thanks. And Mark, I've been really excited because uh, for any new listeners to the show, Mark is such an amazing interviewer. Your interview with Dr. Dalawal was great. That was, uh, at this point, you were really so many episodes. That must have been like 10 episodes ago. That was about 10 episodes ago. That was an incredible episode. I give all the credit to to Gurpreet. He is, he is, we're, we're lucky to have him in our profession. We're just lucky. We globally, he's just, he's one of those special people. Thank you. I will do my best to interview the hell out of you. So let's go into it. Um, <laughs> okay. You have a podcast too. You and I started podcasting right around the same time. I think you started in 2014. I was in 2015 with Explore the Space. You are coming from bedside rounds. I love it. You've taken the most wonderful approach. You are folding in these extraordinary reference points, characters, events in history to help us learn about where we come from in healthcare. And when I say we, that's patient, that's physician, that's nurse, that's advocate, that's all of the world of healthcare, all mixed in in a big puddle. You were an early adopter. Where where were you coming from when you said, I want to talk about medicine, I want to talk about the things that interest me and that I'm excited about. How did this even, I, I, I don't, I, just take us to the beginning, take us to episode zero. Oh, man. Uh, you cannot listen to episode zero because I removed it because it is very embarrassing. But um, oh. so I, I started the podcast the like fifth week of my second year of residency. I, I did a residency in internal medicine at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. And, you know, I wish I had this uh, this narrative, like this grand narrative of all the great things I wanted to do with bedside rounds. But honestly, uh, me and one of my wonderful friends, uh, Dr. Jared McAteer, he works at the Indian Health Service. We 
we loved talking about podcasts. We every other conversation we had was about Radio Lab or Ninety Nine Percent Invisible, and. I was like, why isn't there something like this for medicine? And basically, I set out to create a, a podcast that was similar to what I would want to listen to. Um, and I didn't do it very well at the beginning. <laughs> but over time, I developed, you know, I developed my craft as you have to develop something that I think people like listening to. You and I, I we have literally just met seven minutes ago, say. And, you know, it's like, John C. Riley and Will Ferrell, did we just become best friends? Because that's exactly what I wanted with Explore the Space. I love podcasts. I knew the ones that I liked. I liked, you know, I liked the BS report on Grantland with Bill Simmons. I liked Torre. I liked the same ones that you just identified. I like the ones where I feel like I'm part of something and I want to jump in and contribute. And that's exactly what I was trying to do as well. And I mean, I'll just tell you, look, you, I think you know this because your show is popular. You've totally delivered. These episodes are so embracing. They're so bananas sometimes. They're, they're just wacky. My favorite one, episode 36, Filth Parties. Oh, about Joseph Goldberger and Pellagra? Yeah, that just, was crazy. Anybody that scrolls through a podcast archive and sees filth parties, they're clicking. That's just going to happen, right? Is that one of your is that one of your more popular ones? And then which ones are the ones that have really grabbed people? Oh, oh, that's great. Um, yes, I think the one about Joseph Goldberger is uh, one of my more popular ones. I think the reason for that is, and so very briefly, pellagra is niacin deficiency, but in the early twentieth century. Basically, everybody thought it was an infectious disease. This was shortly after Robert Koch had described, well, essentially described germ theory, and all these diseases were being described being caused by infectious microorganisms. So everyone assumed pellagra, which at that point was a major cause of death and disease in the American South, was also infectious. And this guy, Joseph Goldberger, who worked for the United States Public Health Service, did these did all these experiments to show that no, it wasn't infectious. It was probably a vitamin deficiency. And when no one would believe him, he held these filth parties where he inoculated himself with stool and also ate stool from patients with pellagra in order to prove that it wasn't infectious. So what is not to love about that story? Uh, sorry, I, Mark, I got so excited. I th forgot what your question was. You just, you just answered the question um, and you answered it in a way that I just need a quick second because um, it's one thing to have listened to the episode, but you just, you painted a picture and I'm going to just, you know, I'm going to sit with it. But it's funny that you say this because, right, we talk about filth parties. We also talk about, I, I was a history major and our history informs the work that we do today. And so I'll bring this around. And this is why your show is so important to me and why I think it resonates so much with so many people. We can joke and we can laugh and we can say, ooh, that's so gross. But this is something that redefined how we take care of people in a large part of America at a period of time where life expectancy was way lower than it should have been. But let's take it to today. We have a seminal treatment for a major hospital-acquired infection, Clostridium difficile colitis, C. diff, that we are going to be more and more treating with fecal transplantation. This stuff is it, – it, 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 it doesn't just resonate because it's bizarre. It resonates because there are lessons to be learned. Do you do you tease those out as you're listening? Do you ever say, oh my gosh, I can connect A to B to C to today as I'm doing this work? All the time. Yeah. And, you know, you've, you've hit on something that I'm passionate about. I think a lot of medical history, the way that it is presented 
by physicians, not by historians. I think historians actually do a wonderful job with this. But by physicians is, oh, my God, look at those crazy things that yes, doctors used to do. I agree. And I, you know, one of the reasons that I do this is when you look at eating, <laughs> eating pellagrin stool or bloodletting and you look at it in the context of the day rather than looking back at history and kind of scoffing and thinking that we're – you know, that were better than those physicians and those patients and that culture, we can understand the context that it happened. And having that sort of historical view, I think, helps us put things that I do into context, because there are things that probably both you and I do that are the standard of care right now. 50 years from now, someone's going to look back at that and be like, are you kidding me? You did what? I yeah. totally agree with you. We as a profession, I think, can do a much better job at elevating our own history. I think that your point about how we sort of look back and scoff and that non-physician historians do a way better job of defining medical history than we do, you're right on. You know, we look at these things and it's a lot of shoulder shrugging and laughing. You know, oh my God, you treated heart failure with rotating tourniquets? Well, yes, that that's they're they're trying right they're not trying to be bizarre they're not trying to be weird they're trying to keep people from dying they're trying to yeah. keep people alive and healthy and you're absolutely right that in 50 years they're going to look at mark and adam who practiced hospital medicine early in the days of hospital medicine and said you used to do what and we'll say i, I could tell you some things are going to say that they're going to say you phlebotomized people that much during their hospital stay you right. woke them up every four hours <laughs> these sick older adults yeah. who are at risk for delirium those are standards i mean you gave like, how much opiate yeah you put this person on 300 morphine equivalents a day uh, <laughs> these are things that we don't particularly question maybe the opiate right. one but vital signs are something that i'm passionate about what is the utility in yeah. older adults yeah. who are at a high risk of delirium of waking them up every four hours overnight especially after the first 24 hours in the hospital this juxtaposition came for me so my focus of interest in history was in 19th century america and the american civil war and when you look at american civil war medicine it's really really easy to poo poo it and and to make fun and to say this was silly and they didn't know what they were doing they absolutely knew what they were doing with the information that they had. And you look at how they treated different things and how they tried to do amputations and how they tried to do anesthesia and they gave people all these different bromides. It's because they were trying. It's because our country was facing a casualty crisis that it had never dreamed of. 3% of the population died in four years. There, you know, it's every, it's every finger and every hole to try to hold back the flood. You can't ridicule that. You have to look at it as, in extraordinary circumstances, you have people trying to figure things out. And then from that perspective, we can learn from it. And I think that why bedside rounds is so good and so important is it's not because you can look at episode 36 filth parties and think, ooh, gross, ha ha. You can reframe it as these were people who were trying to help other people, which is our coda, that is our oath. Let's build off of that spirit. Let's build off of those ideas and let's incorporate that it's that ethos into what we're doing now. Yeah. And so I think the Civil War example, this like heroic medicine age is, is very interesting because some of the things that they did by modern standards probably harm their patients. But, you know, let's say some of the amputations they did or the, or the not using antisepsis. And you look back and you realize that what is the big difference between me and those physicians then? And certainly there's more scientific knowledge, no question. But we have a different way of knowing, right? Epistemology, the way that we 
so that you and I, I, I imagine that when you evaluate studies, you're always like, oh, what was this randomized controlled trial? What standards did they use to select the population? Does this match? We have a much more sophisticated way of acquiring and talking about knowledge, which those physicians didn't have. Like that, That's something that I talk about all the time on Bedside Rounds is how our epistemology has evolved and how it continues to evolve to this day. I think that that observation is so important and I think that it infuses your episodes and I think that it infuses them with that sense of that sense of spirit and that sense of adventure and that sense of inquiry that is so important because it will drive our progress going forward but I also think that it informs the connections that we have to the past and you were talking about amputations in the civil war there's a direct line to today. And that direct line is ammunition. And if you look at right, the mini ball, which was the soft lead ball that was used in the rifled muskets that the infantry on both sides had, when it hit human flesh, it would splatter and it would spread. So when it struck bone, it would just remove a huge portion of bone. So physicians and medics were dealing with combat trauma that had never been seen before ever. And these are catastrophic injuries and the way they, the only thing they could figure out was application of tourniquet, ambulance evacuation, amputation. Well, two of those three things we still use today and we're wrestling with the same problem today. We deal with weapons and ammunition with our epidemic of gun violence that leave these devastating injuries that we are struggling to figure out how to manage. When someone is struck by a round from an AR-15, they are shattered by it and our technology is in that same place of, oh my gosh, it's all hands to the pumps to try to figure out how to keep this person from dying. Right. And that's that's a good point. I mean, I think battlefield trauma is has a more direct link because you can go back to Paré and look at his attempts. So this is what, in the 16th century, and look at his attempts to figure out how to treat wounds. I think Battlefield trauma is so much more practical. You know, there's there's less room for theory. You've got people dying in front of you that there's such a clear line of evolution from Paré to the Crimean War to the American Civil War to I honestly it's my this is not something that I have read a lot about, but I understand that like our knowledge of treatments of traumatic brain injuries has gone up considerably in the last 20 years because of our conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's correct. My understanding of that is because our troops are equipped with such better uh, body armor that and and our strategies around management of battlefield trauma have progressed to the point where wounds that previously were non-survivable are now survivable. But also it's the technology that they're facing. There are so much more concussive injury with IEDs and things like that. And again, people survive these at rates that are unexpected. But this all going back to what you're just saying, right? Paré, and then the Crimean War, and Florence Nightingale, and the American Civil War. And all, it's a progression that brings us to this point. And you are helping to define that work. Does that feel like a calling for you when you started doing bedside rounds? Was that the issue? Or was it, hey, let's find some really interesting anecdotes and explore them? Or was it, I want to help people to understand how we got here and how we're going to move forward? That's a great question. Honestly, when I started the show, it was here are some interesting anecdotes that will help, you know, explain why we do things today. It's yeah. only I think when I became an attending and I became an educator myself. Uh, I mean, I'm obviously still a learner. We all are. But when 
part of my goal began to teach my medical students and residents that I started to change the focus of my show to not only to tell an entertaining story and to draw parallels to today, but also to, to equip people with like curiosity, skepticism, like history is we, we have a lot of ways that we can understand medicine and medical practice. Uh, science is one of them. Clinical trials is one of them. Um, there's all sorts of other trials we can do, but I think history um, and the the tools in particular that we get from history are another valid way to understand and contextualize what we do. So that came later. I'll share a story with you. When I was a medical, when I was interviewing for medical school, I was going to different schools and checking them out. And I went to Tulane and I was sitting with the Dean of Students I think, or the dean of this medical school or something, you know, just one of the people that I was interviewing with, but I had, we were sitting in his nice office and he had some really interesting civil war lithographs on the wall. And we talked about them a little bit. And then I was, you know, we're sitting there chatting about these lithographs and what I had studied about history and things like that. And so then we get to my folder, he closes it. And I think, Oh my God, what did I, what did I do? I, I, I'm, I'm out. That's ridiculous. What, what did I just say? And he says, Mark, I just want you to know, you're admitted. How do we get more history majors to apply to medical school? And from that point on, I realized that this is not just about learning factoids and knowing about battles and stuff. It, this informs the work that we do. It gives us things to talk about with our colleagues, with our patients, with our you know medical students and things like that. It's vital to have this information. Have you had a moment like that where it clicked for you that you felt like, this is going to be a part of my work and my career forever. Uh, and aside before that, you know, I went to Tulane, right? No, I did not. That's did totally you, awesome. Do you remember who you interviewed with? Who the doctor who said that was? Oh my gosh. I don't. It was, was a while. His last name Jaffe? Say that again. J-A-F-E. Uh, it's J-A-F-F-E. Dr. Jaffe. Was he a surgeon? Gosh, I wish I could say yes. I honestly don't remember. I wish I did, but I don't. Well, small world. I, I too went to Tulane, which I do think, you know, Tulane, the city of New Orleans in general, oh. um, the old charity hospital is so steeped in history. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Absolutely. It's hard to it's hard to escape that feeling. It, not just Tulane, but the city of New Orleans yes. in general. Yes, I totally agree with you. Oh, Great place to go to school. Good, good, good. I knew you were on the show for a reason. <laughs> Did you go to Tulane? No, I went to Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. Uh, well, they uh, when Katrina took out Tulane, Dr. DeBakey at Baylor hosted our – this was before my – like a couple years before me, but they hosted our class. I love it. That's so great. Um, I actually – this is going to happen a lot. Sorry. What was your question again? <laughs> it was like, did I have a moment when – Did you uh, have a moment when it really clicked for you that the study of history was going to be a part of your career and that you would want it to really help elevate your career? Oh, that's a good question. I, yes, I, I don't think I had a singular moment like you. I think to me, one of the, this is early on when I was doing the podcast, like I, again, the podcast came first. I think my interest and focus came second, but when I was first reading about Rene Lenac and the invention of the stethoscope, this is a long time in bedside rounds history. And honestly, I didn't know anything about Rene Lenac. And I pulled up an English translation of his on mediate auscultation and I was reading it. And I was reading how he approached this patient with an uh, what we would call an empyema. Um, and I realized, like, I was, I was finally, you know, I'm an R2 at this point. And I, something clicks in my head, and I'm like, I get it. 
I get why we developed the pulmonary exam in the way we did. And how powerful was this method back then? Um, like, I get why it's been taught and developed in this way. And I just had this fundamental connection reading Rene Lenek's works uh, that I felt over, let's see, it was almost 200 years in the past. And like, I could put myself in this clinical situation in a vastly different, different culture with a vastly different patient, but I got it. And it, it was just, it was an exciting feeling. When you're now working with residents, medical students, and more importantly, patients that you're seeing in their families, do you pull those levers with them to, to get that same spark? Are there opportunities where you can infuse the, what, what you're teaching or find an opportunity to express empathy or to connect around something, a common interest? Does that infuse the way you do that work? Absolutely. And you will be unsurprised to know that I talk about this with my patients, even when I'm working by myself as a hospitalist yeah. all the time. All the time. I find that patients, you know, it's obviously a self-selecting population. I, I, there are a certain subset of patients who I'll talk with us about, but patients really appreciate hearing about the history of why we do things the way we do. And it's always coached. When I, when I talk about this, I talk about it in the context of uncertainties and ambiguities, why certain things have developed in this fashion. And I, you know, it's tough because I don't get a neutral chance to ask my patients what they think, but they always seem to be interested and appreciate an historical context what's going on. Where do you like to look for your material? Where do you get your ideas from? Because your archive is similar to mine. It's bananas and it's all over the map, but it's all great. I'm not going to say that mine is all great, but yours <laughs> is all great. And it's, but it is, it's all over the map. Um, aside right. from um, it being about human beings and loosely associated with something to do with healthcare, it is everywhere. And I love it. Where do you find all these nuggets? My, I, so I suspect my workflow is similar to yours. Um, I start by finding, I do a lot of reading that is not related to yeah. exactly what I'm working on, and I will find a nugget. So for example, let's say that Pellagra episode. I knew, you know, I know what Pellagra is. I've even seen it before because I used to work in Botswana, um, but I didn't know about Goldberger's Filth Parties, and I was reading a completely unrelated book um, that had a throwaway line about Joseph Goldberger eating stool. And I was like, I cannot let that go without learning more about that. Yeah. So a, a lot, a lot of things come from that. And then reading begets more reading because inevitably as I'm researching something, someone will ha make an obscure reference and I'll be like, I need to know more about that. So what's happening with bedside rounds? You've been at it for five years. You've got, you know, you've got a following what's happening with it. What sort of, what sort of insights are you gathering from people, from docs, from nurses, but also from the from the general population, people who find you on iTunes or, you know, blunder into your website somehow? What sort of things, what sort of what sort of messages, ideas, concepts, what's coming up? So uh, I am – things that I'm working on in particular, I am working on an episode that I think is going to be my most ambitious ever about – the literature behind smoking and lung cancer, uh, that's really just scratching the surface because it's really about this huge debate that is still ongoing today about how do we know, like, how do we determine causality in medicine? How do we know what causes a certain disease in this very like post-World War II era where infectious disease has largely been identified and we have treatments for it? How do we determine what causes these chronic diseases and then modify that? And it's actually an active debate that is ongoing to this day. And it really started around smoking. So it's very, I, I'm very excited about it. 
what do you hear from people when they hear your episodes? Do you get disbelief? Do you get, I'm all in? Do you get something in the middle? Is it all over the map? Well, I think you have selection bias. The people who reach out to talk to me about it are usually all in. I think what I get is from a lot of uh, learners in medical fields, and not just medicine. I get, I hear a lot from nursing students, from PA students, um, who else have I listened, Uh, from people who are studying public health, uh, who, because they're drinking from the fire hose, as it were, and they're getting a very, like, biomedical view, really appreciate um, really appreciate an alternative perspective. I shouldn't say an, a complementary perspective on the practice of medicine. And it's, I think because of that, those are the people who I tend to hear from directly the most because I'm in a, the same field as them. And then the medical students, I'm curious about them, right? Medical students come on the wards. I mean, I remember what it was like. You're just a sponge. You want to learn and absorb everything. When you start to bring up this, these historical themes and you're, it's a patient with advanced heart failure. And so on the one hand, you're talking about, okay, this is a person that we would need to maybe refer for an LVAD and they need to get a transplant eval. But hey, let's let's go back and start talking about some of the natural history of, of the way we've understood congestive heart failure, the way we've treated it, going back to rotating tourniquets. When, when you bring up LVADs and then you bring up origin therapies, do you get a sense that the level of interest and engagement and enthusiasm swings one way or the other, or is it pretty much equal? I So when I'm teaching on the wards, I, I do take a very historical perspective, but I take a different perspective than I do in the podcast. I really try to look back to the history of why we do things the way we do now okay. and whether or not that might be right. I so you. like heart failure, I've with my, with my residents. So for example, I've gone back to like some, one of one of my colleagues raised a concern about furosemide ototoxicity, and my pharmacist was like, "Yeah, you have to be careful with levels of Lasix like that. You might cause ototoxicity." So I was like, "This is a great clinical question. Why don't we look into the history of why we're worried about Lasix ototoxicity?" And I pulled the studies, mostly from the '70s, also from the early '80s, and it dates from a time when they were using doses of like 1,600 milligrams of Lasix. The ototoxicity is completely reversible, um, and the, the total. A lot of these were in post-transplant patients, so this is in the early days of kidney transplants, and it's just not relevant to the way that you or I practice heart failure management on the wards. So I, you know, I, I make a list of this. I talk them through the literature, and I'm like, so. Looking at this, would you be worried about uh, like a LASIK strip at 20 milligrams an hour? And they're like, no. So it's I, I try to walk them through that sort of research process to interrogate why we do things the way we do, which I guess is what I do on bedside rounds, but it's more clinically oriented when I'm on the wards. This takes us to one of the other things about your show that I just love so much is you bring it up the essence of storytelling. And so when you connect Lasix dosing and heart failure to a story like that, they're never going to forget it. If you just bring up Lasix dosing and heart failure, you know what? They're going to have to go back to up to date and they're going to read it again and they might read it again. But when you bring it up in that kind of a context, it's so unique. It's so engaging. It's so interesting. That one gets filed away, right? That one goes into long-term memory for easy recall and they're going to share that story forever. And I think that gets to something that you and I I I imagine that you feel similarly to me, but I 
feel very passionately about the importance of storytelling as a physician, right? We talk about, I mean, we use the word historian wrong. We'll talk about a patient being historian. In fact, we are the historian. But storytelling is both taking, like, getting the elements of the story and then restructuring that story and telling it back to our patient and our colleagues. That's basically what my job is, right? The Once you know what's going on, treatment is not terribly tricky. But in order to find out, well, I shouldn't say that. There's a lot... <laughs> That's not true. But like the the crafting a story, making it make sense to you and to your patient, and then expressing that to your colleagues, that is fundamentally what the internist does. Are we good at it? Are we, are no. we where we need to be with it? Have we lost some of those skills or are we still gathering those skills? Uh, as someone who reads a lot of old medical literature, I think that... We were bet we are uh, we have not gotten better. We've probably gotten worse at the storytelling aspect. At the same time, I think there are some optimistic things in medicine. I think uh, the patient's experience is more focused on now than it was maybe twenty or thirty years ago, which is a good thing. Uh, talking about the patient's healthcare perspectives and their own view of their own illness, like I. I don't know about you, but a question that I always like to ask my patients is, what do you think is going on? And you can learn so much just with that simple question. But overall, I think an over-reliance on technology and laboratory tests on imaging studies has removed some of the necessity for us to craft these stories. And as such, it's just a skill that, you know, is atrophying. I'm in 100% agreement. I think that that ability to craft the story lends us entree into the things that physicians as human beings can do that will always be a value added. And one of my concerns is that physicians and healthcare now face, you know, the next big challenge is going to be the intrusion again of technology that will have bold ideas of what it will do for healthcare. And it might even try to nudge the human physician out of the way. Nothing can ever replace what you just described. And I think that the fact that it's atrophied, it's important that we recognize that because when a muscle atrophies, guess what? You can rebuild it. It'll come back. You just have to start training it again. And when you do that, when you, when you build it back up again, I think that you can continue to integrate what you just said, the patient experience, a focus on patient safety, circling back to do no harm you know, integrating technology, but in a way that people can actually understand and feel like they have an advocate around. I think that that's really going to be the value added of things that we can continue to do in our profession forever that no one could ever take away unless we give it away. Oh, I agree with you completely. I think that is the power of the internist, of the physician for non-American listeners, is that ability to to take a story. That's one of the major things that make us the way we are. And that's what I think is great about what you do and about a lot of the doctors you've had on your show, like what Grace does. A lot of these creative doctors are trying to rekindle, you know, rekindle that skill or grow that skill in creative ways, which is wonderful. Grace Ferris and her cartoons, I think are brilliant. And it's funny since I did that episode with her, I have found so many more physicians and nurses who do animation and who do cartoons and graphic novels. It's growing really fast. And I think that that's one of the other things that we can do. And I, what I love about your show is we are getting to people where they live. These are important lessons. We need to understand history. We need to understand niacin deficiency because you know what? We could see it. 
in our career and you need to be ready to recognize it and to treat it. But when you take these things out of stayed journals or out from things that are behind the paywall or remove the worst thing that we do lingo and bring it down, bring it out, bring it forward, bring it up, whatever direction you want to where people live and where they are. They're on social media. They're on Apple podcasts. They want this stuff when we bring it out. And when it's brought out by another doc, that's gold. Right. And especially for our youngest learners. So for for our students and on the ward, students just get socialized in some of the, some of the worst messages. Um, you can see our, like our clinical students just get crushed by what, you know, by what they view medicine is and then what they see the reality as. So I think that podcasting in this sense is such a valuable way to combat some of that hidden curriculum. I like that idea of a hidden curriculum. I think it's, I think that you're right. And I think that we're going to see podcasts like bedside rounds having a bigger, bigger role to play. And look, our, our big organizations are recognizing that, right? You work with the American college of physicians, your show, you can, people can come and listen to you now and get their continuing medical education credits. There's a recognition of not just the entertainment value, but the intrinsic learning value in this work. Yeah. And I, just to be clear, I can't credit the ACP enough. They've really taken a big chance on me. This is a (laughs) Like, this is a new and exciting territory, having a medical podcast about like philosophy and history as something where you can order, uh, where you can earn continuing medical education. And they've been nothing but amazingly supportive. And I think it shows how far looking the ACP is as an organization. No, absolutely. Full credit. They're being really smart. And I think that hopefully a lot more of our medical societies follow suit. I'll be honest, I'm really looking forward to the Society of Hospital Medicine following suit and creating these sorts of things where the curriculum is such that it's open, it's forward-facing, anybody can find it. If you're a physician or not a physician, it doesn't matter. You can still find it and enjoy it. I think that that's really, really smart. It, it's it's a humanizing element, right? The whole purpose of Explore the Space is to close that gap between the world of healthcare and those who seek out healthcare, which is everybody. This is how we do it, right? They People are going to get to know you as someone who speaks in a way that they like understand and enjoy and there's that that's that's the that's the answer yeah and that's actually that's something that i haven't considered very deeply but i think an important point one of the powers of social media is not only for us to reach you know other people within the medical field and associated fields but to reach our patients and the general public i mean ultimately our patients is everybody right everybody comes into contact with the medical system at some point and i would like to think that by having a lot of these honest conversations like talking about the ambiguity around lasix dosing we uh i i would hope that that humanizes us to our patients and you know helps talk about the uncertainty and helps contextualize the uncertainty that still exists in providing healthcare. This is exactly why I felt inspired to start Explore the Space. It's exactly why I reach out to people like you to come on because people who are not in healthcare but know that at some point they're going to need to access it. They need to know that there are bright and thoughtful people working on these questions, grappling with these issues, and also just out there in the world to help take care of them when they need it. There's value in that. And people need to know that this exists. Yeah. And I, that's actually a justification for, so I, I think you and I are both pretty active on Twitter. That is an, a great justification for med Twitter that I had not heard before. And I haven't really seen studied is that re, the, like that outreach to patient communities or even individual patients. 
I haven't seen studies, but I'm not waiting for them because the <laughs> more we connect we. and communicate, the better. Now, I'll be very clear. I do not converse with patients on social media. Um, I don't dispense medical advice on social media, and I know you don't either. I dispense medical advice with patients with whom I have a therapeutic relationship in the hospital setting, and that's really about it. That being yeah, said, yeah, I mean, when I'm talking converse, I don't yeah. mean talk about their medical conditions. Right, have right. A, have a dialogue in general. I agree um, with you. That's my point. That if people can find you and learn from you, or if they can find Jonathan Giftos and his incredible work on opioid management in our incarcerated population and the ripple effect that that has on society at large, or Anybody else, I, I, my, I got my brain kind of goes on tilt when I think about all the physicians doing interesting stuff on social media that anybody can learn from because it's all open access. You and your buddy, Tony Brayu and your med threads that you guys generate that are just extraordinary. Anybody can access them and it's so smart. Yeah. Um, it's exciting. I, that's, I, that is the big, I think the last year for me has shown that social media, it, unclear whether podcasting counts as social media it's kind of this weird like web 2.0 that really got popular when social media came around but you know like podcasting and social media is this new form of medical communication and what i'll say this is what it reminds me of as someone who reads lots of old medical journals when you read the lancet in its first or the boston uh, medical and surgical journal the precursor to the new england journal of medicine when you read those very old early 1800s medical journals, when medical journals really started, they're kind of similar to this. It's a bunch of people who presumably knew each other, who are really having a dialogue between themselves, but for other people to benefit, like wow. uh, in this case, other doctors, but other people to benefit. And it kind of reminds me of that energy. I am delighted by that. I'd never thought of it that way. I love that. I think you're yeah, right. Medical journals didn't used to be boring. They actually used to be pretty exciting. No, I agree. I love that. I think you're right. I love it. Oh my gosh. Oh, Adam, that's brilliant. Well done, man. That's killer. Put that out on Twitter immediately. That's fantastic. Uh, I've, I've actually written an article about it, which is not ready to be published yet. But it's, right. uh, well, we'll look forward to it because I think that <laughs> I, that's really good. I like it. I totally co-sign that. That's great. So you're <laughs> going to keep doing this, obviously, right? This is not this is longitudinal work for you. Where do you want bedside rounds to go? What, is, what would you like to see it turn into? Oh, that's a great question. I. I've only been working with the ACP for what, like seven months. I would like for it to open additional opportunities for myself to to continue to teach about history, and I think it has. Right? I've um, I'm going to the National ACP uh, on April 11th. I think at 11:15 in the morning. If any listeners want to come, if they're going to the National ACP to talk about the history of syphilis, I'm going to be going to the Kaiser Permanente Northwest to do the a keynote speech on the med- on medical history in April of 2020. So it's it's opened these doors for me to do what I love, which is to talk to my peers about why I think the history of medicine and philosophy is important. It's a great trajectory that you're on. I'm excited that you're on it. I, I mean, I'm such, making it up as I go along on it. No, of course. Well, we all are, you know, and, and you know, I, I found you on social media a few months ago um, when I started to just get more active on Twitter. And I've been so excited to have this conversation and it's completely exceeded my expectations. This was so fun. And I'm excited that we're sort of on this journey together. We're walking parallel paths and we can exchange ideas and ping pong things back and forth on our podcasts and, and on Twitter and hopefully at conferences in the future. It's just, it's really, really wonderful. Thank you so much for coming and talking about your work and, and your show and all of these wonderful things that you're involved in. 
Yeah, was, this has been a great conversation. And I, even if it's in April of 2020, I look forward to seeing you in person. Absolutely. Adam, thanks so much. Thanks, Mark. I'll talk to you later. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.